That is the question this morning. How, how do we change? I mean, seriously, how do I take the things that I don't like about me and simply be different? The question's all that harder, I think, because when we look back at our personal histories, we've got so many past attempts of failure uh, we oftentimes either want to just give up <clears throat> or just live in the midst of that disappointment. I heard one Bible teacher say that religious people tend to go into three directions when it comes to understanding how religious people change. The first one is what he calls the mechanical view. Uh, these are people who suggest that change comes from following a correct procedure, three steps to a better prayer life. You know, the, the diet and the exercise fad sort of thrive on this particular approach. Secondly, there's what we might call the moralistic view, which simply says, well, the problem with your life is, is you've just not adopted the correct set of rules. If you'll simply deploy some reminders to keep you uh, clear about what your willpower needs to work harder at, then you'll change. The third kind of change of view is what people call the mystical view. These are folks who are waiting for a hidden, powerful force Sometimes it's on the inside, sometimes it's on the outside, that once you tap into it, it'll come into your life and bring sweeping change. All you need is a yielded spirit and a willing heart. So the point is, how are you doing with change? If you look back and at your life, are you hopeful about the way in which you're changing or are you discouraged? Well, we're wrapping up a series this morning on spiritual formation or the way in which this church commends growth to our people. And in the passage we just read, we find Jesus is saying, what I'm looking for is a change at the deepest levels of your core motivations. Any other attempt to, to change that, that does not involve being connected to him like a vine and a branch is ultimately going to be superficial. My guess is you have some experience with that. I mean, think about that friend who recently went through a marital breakup. You know, oftentimes when a couple starts to drift apart, the, the more confident of the two will come in and announce that they are threatening to leave the relationship. Well, in a panic, the partner tells them that they're going to do better. They shape up. They start to take on some new habits. And, of course, moved by pity, the other person says, okay, we'll give it another chance. But before too long, as time goes on, when the threat of the other person leaving is gone... Those old habits come back, don't they? And we wonder whether real change ever actually happened. What happened? We do not change, Jesus is saying, by being coerced from a force on the outside. But rather only when transformation has happened, when God comes in and begins to reorient how you look at everything. And he assumes that that's only going to be found in a powerful, walking, talking, loving relationship with the living Jesus. That's his methodology. I am the vine, you are the branches, he says. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is saying that if you want to experience lasting, deep change, you've got to get connected to him. But the question we've got to ask is, well, what does that mean? How seriously do you abide in Jesus? What is the writer even talking about? Well, what I want to do this morning is I want you to see that the Bible is going to try to create an image of a new you. And again, this is going to sound daunting, but I have six points I want to make to this end. Don't panic. I'm going to get this out on time, I promise you. But what happens is, is they, they create for us a sort of a, the contours of a Christian approach to sanctification. 
And I simply want to do an introduction. Obviously, we could do a series of sermons on each one of these. I want us to be introduced to it, though, at the outset, so that as we move forward in our quest for spiritual formation, I've got some familiarity with these topics, okay? So let's dive into number one. First of all, change begins by understanding the importance of knowing you, or what we might call developing a biblical anthropology. Look, I grew up in a very religious context, and I felt like I was constantly being reminded that there was a struggle going on between my head and my heart. That is, there were these zealous youth ministers who would say, you've got the information up here, but it needs, literally one guy said, it needs to move down 10 inches into your emotions where you really feel it. Now, don't get me wrong. I know what the youth leader was trying to say. Just because you have right information about God and the gospel doesn't necessarily mean that it has enlivened you into your emotions and your choices, and etc. But I have come to be convinced that that is actually not the way the Bible understands how we work. The Bible's view of me is different because it centers who I am on this thing called the heart. Proverbs 4, 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. So the heart is more than just the place where my emotions come from, like we think about in our day. No, the heart is where the entirety of my life's output finds its source. You are fundamentally a heart. My thoughts come from my heart. Ephesians 1.18, Paul prays that the hearts will be enlightened so that they may know the hope that God's called them to. My emotions come from my heart. Paul says in Romans 9.2 that he has great anguish in his heart for his unbelieving Jews. Finally, even my choices, what we might call my volitional capacity, comes from my heart. Romans 6.27, Paul is thankful that his readers have been what? Obedient from the heart to the teaching that they received. What's the point? Well, if I'm going to understand me, <laughs> I've got to learn to talk about myself the way the Bible talks about me. And I am not, in the Bible's estimation, a collection of thoughts that are somehow trying to move into my emotions. That's not the Bible's view of you. Rather, I am a heart that informs every aspect of my being. I saw one theologian tweet it this way. How about that? A tweet. Look how, look how contemporary we are. He says, look, what the heart trusts, the mind justifies, the emotions desire, and the will carries out, everything follows the heart. That's a biblical anthropology. So the question remains, well, what, is, what then is the heart? Well, the heart is that thing inside of you that locks on to things in life that you have found lovely. The things that you found worth your time, worth your allegiances. Jesus will say it this way in Luke 12, 34. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Did you catch that? Your heart is the mechanism that binds you to the things you treasure, the things in which you take joy, the places that thrill you. Now, look, I realize that all sounds a little technical, but it is absolutely vital to understand if we're going to seek real change. Second thing, not only do you have to understand the importance of knowing you, we have to own the disaster that is you, or what we call the doctrine of repentance. Now, that's kind of harsh language, but it's not less than how the Bible talks about us. You can imagine a doctor who gets very frustrated because he's prescribing medication to a patient who refuses to take it. Why? Because the patient's not convinced that they need it. In other words, treating patients who don't think they're sick <laughs> is a problem even more so if they don't see the severity of their disease. 
So, so before any kind of healing can take place, there has to be an owning that takes, takes place. I was reminded of a line from John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, who in one of his letters to a friend ended up talking about his life prior to his conversion to Christianity, where he was deeply involved in the English slave trade. And he says, prior to becoming a Christian, custom, example, and interest had blinded my eyes. Think about that. Custom. Well, this is the way we've always done it. Example. Oh, it's the way that so-and-so does it. Interest. Hey, y'all, he's the ABCs of me. It's just the way I am. You better get used to it. He said all of those things combined to create a spiritual blindness. There were blind spots in me that kept me from seeing who I really am. But the Bible comes along and says it's only God's word that can penetrate that reality and show you the picture of your true self. But be warned, it ain't flattering. <laughs> Especially when you look at places like Romans 3, 9 and following when Paul says, what then? Are we Jews, we religious people, any better off than those unreligious people? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all are under sin. As it's written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. They've all turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitternesses. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, that's not a pretty picture, is it? But it's one that we've got to own if we're really going to see real change. And Paul will say in places like 2 Corinthians 7.10 that that comes through repentance. Paul is commending the Corinthians for their repentance. The word repentance simply translated means a change of mind. But Paul contrasts it with a, an ungodly or, or unhelpful form of repentance that you and I would call remorse. Remorse is nothing more than an aggravated self-pity where we sort of feel bad long enough to hope that we can win God's favor that way. Repentance, though, is God-directed. We aim it towards him because we know we've offended someone who loves us. And for that re reason, repentance actually makes you feel better after you do because you're returning to someone who cares about you. Remorse actually makes you feel worse because you're still living in the midst of your sin. So that's the point. We have to own the disaster that is you. Thirdly, we have to begin to uncover the allegiances that dominate you, what we call the doctrine of idolatry. Look, remember how you function. There is, at the core of your human humanity, an allegiance center that locks on to power and beauty and comfort but by man's original design, God was supposed to be the only one who really occupied that space. A number of months ago, we did a study through the Ten Commandments where we mentioned that the Ten Commandments starts with the command that really sums up the rest of the other nine. You shall have no other gods before me. There is one singular priority. Now, the question is, what happens to the heart that decides to rebel against that one, that one priority? Well, you'll notice in the Bible that there is no option not to worship something. In other words, human beings are worshipers willy-nilly. If it's not God, we'll go after the very next thing we could get our hands on. In other words, anything that we worship other than God 
ultimately is going to bring us slavery instead of freedom. That's the human predicament. I always use the illustration of the fish that has been convinced that the real problem in his life is water. But every attempt that he makes to free himself from the water shows him that he is not free at all. Well, the illustration simply means that God is mankind's water. Whether he acknowledges it or not, all human dysfunction flows from these false allegiances to other rival gods. Seriously, have you ever wondered why you are the way you are? In the Bible's estimation, there is a complex of idolatries in your heart that together have formed what you and I call your personality. But that's what they are. Strategies that make me tick are an interweaving, ever-changing network of rival gods all competing for the life of my soul. And once you begin to unpack that, you've got a long way to understanding exactly how we change. So uncovering the allegiances that dominate you forth, we then have to starve the distractions that are trying to define you. Or what we call the Christian doctrine of mortification, putting something to death. Romans 8.14 is the best example of this. Paul says, for if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So Paul sees change as this process of putting sin to death. It's fascinating. The idols of your heart become so personal and so fundamental, it's like they take on a life of their own. The reason why, of course, is because we define ourselves by them. We're happy when we succeed and we're miserable when we fail. How long does it take before you realize that idol is tyrannizing me? Such a big deal. I mentioned a couple weeks ago my friend Brian Habig who said narrative drives lifestyle. And what he means by that is, is that the story that you are believing about yourself in any given moment is the key to explaining why you do what you do. So if we're ever going to talk about change, we've got to talk about altering my storyline. That is, when I struggle with sin, Haybig will say, am I a new person? Am I a new me who's fighting? Or am I the old me who's frantically trying to become more acceptable to God? This is the way we used to put it when we were in RUF circles. We'll say, are you struggling to be free from sin? Or are you free to struggle with sin? The former is slavery. The latter is actually what, what the gospel has won for us. Look, changing in the Bible's estimation is so certain because of what God has made the new you to be that there's even some places in the New Testament that talk about your change as already happening. Something that's in your past if you're a believing person. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.11 says this, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Catch those verb tenses there? You were washed, were sanctified. What's Paul doing? This is his way of talking about the new you as opposed to the old you. And so as my identity has changed, my storyline has changes. And when my storyline changes, so can I. That's the idea. But here's the deal. The old way of thinking about myself, the old man, clings pretty tightly, as you might have noticed. And so Paul says, it's got to be killed. And I realize that's a violent metaphor, but it helps to kind of get this piece of how we change. Because sin is this, this living thing inside of me that's got to be destroyed. And so Paul is basically saying, the best way to destroy something, 
How about this? The best way to kill any living thing is to stop feeding it. In many ways, mortification in its best light is done by starvation. That's the primary way to put an end to it. Well, how do we starve that old man? Very simply, we feast on something better. This is the idea. I've mentioned on a number of occasions the Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers and his little essay, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The whole upshot of the article is basically saying, the way to get your spiritual eyes off of something to which your heart is attracted is just to find something more attractive to take its place. <laughs> Chalmers says, you're, you're actually doing this all the time. He says, if I want to get your eyes, young men, off of someone that you find attractive that you're looking at, the easiest way to get your eyes off them is to bring somebody more attractive right behind them. Because your eyes are of a nature that they will lock upon those things that you find to be glorious. What if your heart's the exact same way? That's what Paul is saying. So here's the question we ask when we think about change. Has there ever been anything deeply attractive to you about the gospel? Is there any good news in your gospel? That's the question. Have we ever seen in the person of Jesus, his person, his power, his obedience on your behalf, his loving relationship with his father that he wants to draw us into, has that ever touched you on the level of your desires? By which I mean that you want more of it. <laughs> That's the question. Because if not, don't let that race you over to guilt. Oh, he's so right. I don't, I don't, I don't want Jesus that way. <clears throat> Rather, get it, to, get it to ask this question. Maybe there was something I missed. Somewhere along the way, there might have been something I missed. So we keep saying, we're going to rework the calculus of the good news until it resonates in my soul and thrills my soul. And the more that I feast on that, the more I'm starving that old man. And those other things that used to allure me start to die off, we hope. So starving the distractions that define you. Number five, we have to drill down on the features of the new you. This is what we call spiritual disciplines. Again, if we starve one thing, we've got to feed the other. Christians have gotten used to calling these, these troughs of grace uh, the means of grace, right? But one of the things that we have to note is how easily the means of grace can shift on us. We know what the means of grace are. We converse with Jesus and hear from him when we read his word. Feasting on the Bible is part of that process. We, 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 we continue a conversation with Jesus in this moment-to-moment -moment activity of a prayerful life. We even connect with Jesus physically by being among his people and, and participating in all the rituals of church life and, and the meals that he directed us to practice. We know those. Those are means of grace. But here's what happens. Invariably, when you start down a path of the means of grace, they morph, do they not, over time? And sometimes they cease to be means of grace, but they become the ends of grace. What do I mean by that? Well, it's so easy for activities done in spiritual light to suddenly become ends in themselves. I keep quoting from John Newton this morning, but he has a great passage in a letter where he's talking with someone who, when they first became a Christian, I mean, you couldn't keep them away from the Bible and from all these religious activities. They were so excited. But then over time, things kind of waned, and he starts to wonder what happened, and he begins to doubt whether he was a Christian at all. But listen to how, listen to how Newton uh, uh, counsels him. He says, this believer makes mistakes the nature and design of spiritual disciplines. 
which aren't given for him to rest in, but to encourage him to press forward. He thinks he's right with God because he has them, and he fondly hopes to always have them. But before too long, he feels a change. His comforts are withdrawn. He finds no heart to pray, no attention in hearing. Maybe indwelling sin revives with fresh strengths, and perhaps Satan returns with redoubled rage. Suddenly, he's at his wit's end. He's at his wit's end. He thinks that his hopes from the gospel were presumptuous, and that the comforts of grace were mere delusions. He wants to feel something that may give him a warrant to trust in the free promises of Christ. Man, I, I said in the last service, I really feel like I want to do a sermon on that last sentence. What warrant do you have to trust and lean on the promises of Christ? The, the sense of all, what often happens is we begin to look for the warrant in ourselves. The only warrant to know that God loves me is the fact that he offered it at the cross. That's the warrant of salvation. But I digress. Here, here's, the way, here's, what, here's what Newton is saying. He's saying at first, at the early parts of our Christianity, we're drawing off of God's love. But eventually, we start inferring God's love. You know the difference? You draw off of God's love when you stand amazed that someone would love a sinner like you. We infer God's love when we think, well, this is kind of a this for that kind of situation. If I give him my obedience, I can know that he's pleased with me and vice versa. No, that's a way to slavery, Paul's going to say. We are looking for those ways to nurture this private part of me to feed and to know Christ. It's absolutely central for us to drill down on the features of the new you. Number six, and finally, we have to clothe ourselves in the glory of the one who knows you, or what we call the doctrine of faith. Look, the final consideration in the Bible's way of helping you change is by getting you to think about the clothes that you're wearing. Now, I'm not talking about the fact of, you know, whether you're attuned to the latest fashions, of course, but have you ever considered the role that your clothes play in your life? I think there's at least two reasons. Number one, we wear clothes to cover. We want to cover things of which we are embarrassed or private things that we don't want other people to see. The second, we wear, the second reason why we wear clothes is to identify us. We don't like to think that we're so identified by how we look, but we, we kind of assume a persona when we dress the way we do. Do we not? Usually it's somebody in our community that we admire. Sometimes it's a uniform, like a policeman's uniform or maybe a doctor. Well, the Bible actually speaks of putting on spiritual clothes as well. Colossians 3.12, Paul says believers have put off the old self, taken those clothes off, and we've put on the new self. He says specifically in Galatians 3.27 that what we've put on is we've put on Christ. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, very simply, it's just like what we do with our regular clothes. There is a sense in which what the gospel is has become a covering for my shame, for all of the pieces inside of me for which I am ashamed. It always reminds me, though, of, of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and, and them suddenly waking up one day and realizing that they had shame. They were naked. And they grabbed leaves, and they're doing their best to kind of cover themselves and how silly they must have looked in their doing so. But that's why Jesus had come along saying, I'm the only covering. It will only be me that offers you that satisfaction. But then secondly, just like our clothes, change is also about covering myself in Jesus' identity. I love this. Jesus did not just die for my sins on the cross. He died for my whole being, the very definition of what it means to be me. 
In other words, changing means putting an end to defining myself by the world's standards. And daily, hourly, thinking through the implications of what it means for Jesus to be the only person who can really tell me who I am. He has to be my priority. Oh, look, let me finish with this. You know, clothing myself in Jesus. Look, that's just a flowery way of saying that we end up changing when we unite ourselves to someone in a very deeply personal way. And I have been searching for an illustration for a month and a half on this final point. And honestly, this is as good as I can do. I wish that I could have people come up and bear witness and testimony of how different I am now than I was prior to meeting Ginger Hubbard. The difference between what I am like now versus what I was then is marked, let's just say, okay? I am in a possession of a, a measure of kindness that for whatever reason comes very naturally to this woman. And it's suddenly come off me. Now, the question I want to ask is, is why has that happened? Now, there's no doubt that there has had to be some measure of discipline where we're trying to be good spouses. Uh, there is some measure in which I have had to put to death any potential rival loves that might inf in invade that particular uh, relationship. Yes, we've had to ask forgiveness on a regular basis a thousand times. But when I really think about the reason why I have taken on the best of Ginger's attributes, I think it's because I live with her. Because some 25 years ago, this summer, by the way, we made a decision and vowed to do life together. <laughs> In other words, it's been her nearness that has changed me. Our nearness to each other that has molded and formed us into each other's likeness. Do you see the point? Is there any analog in that illustration for how I think about Jesus? Because there is a sense in which there will be no change. If what Jesus is saying in John 15 is right, that there will be no change, that apart from me you can do nothing, he's saying that unless I move in with you, unless there is a nearness to my presence, unless there is a walking, talking, breathing reality where you are interacting with me, and figuring out exactly what that means. There's no change that's even possible. That's what we're setting in front of us. Look, we have started a journey down the question of spiritual formation. What is it that God is forming in us? And I think that every time we go back and visit that question, we have to make sure that whatever means I employ, because look, we just went through six different biblical doctrines of sanctification. That's what we just did. And at any given time, God might bring some of those things to life in me and, and really ignite my imagination over them. But if they are not subsumed, if they are not gathered together, if they are not understood primarily in union with Jesus, those efforts are going to do just the opposite of what we think they will. And we won't be formed into the likeness of Christ. We'll be formed into the likeness of our idolatries. Look, let us be known for a thousand things in this community. Who knows what those things might be from the watching world? The prayer, though, is that when they walked away, they would say, those people have been with Jesus. That's what we want this to be known for. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do that. And we want to admit to the fact that we don't all know exactly what that means. What does it mean to invite you in nearness? We know, Father, we read your word to hear from you. We know we pray to you, but sometimes we wonder if it's just words going on in our head. 
Father, what we need is we need you to manifest yourself. Make yourself clear. And it's not because you've not made yourself clear. It's because we love to walk around with blinders. Father, help us to know how it is that we can know you now that you've left. Now that you're not here bodily. Would you lead us by your spirit and to understand what it means to know and love and be loved by you? Would you do that? Lord, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.